Hey Jay, is Bloodscream a vampire? Sort of, Miles. He's got some of the standard hallmarks, so pale skin, sharp teeth, immortality, leaves victims bleeding uncontrollably. But my understanding is that he goes for life force rather than blood. Except with Wolverine. What does Bloodstream want with Wolverine's blood? He believes that if he drinks Blood it... Bloodstream will get Wolverine's powers? Not even remotely. It'll be delicious? It'll make Bloodstream human again. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 325 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a cornucopia of glorious what-the-hell. Yeah, this is a fairly scattershot episode. Not not actually scattershot the event, but, but scattershot the adjective. Well, that was shattershot anyway, so, you know, it's different. I'm sure there's been an event called scattershot at some point, somewhere. Starring Scatterstar. Yeah, yeah. It's like, like Shatterstar, but kind of a lot harder to pin down. Fair. I mean, honestly, Shatterstar is kind of hard to pin down. But today, we were just going to do uh, an annual and an issue of X-Men Unlimited, since those are kind of the same thing. Generally, big stories, somewhat removed from continuity, but still worth covering. How those specific entities have been interacting with ongoing continuity has been varying a lot lately, and the two that we found are pretty much one-shots, so we were pretty excited about being able to just sort of cover the two of them and not, you know, have them roll straight into a major storyline. But here's the thing about Cable and X-Force Annual 1995. It's kind of fun, but almost nothing happens, and... The main story is an Impossible Man story. We've seen a couple of those before in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 7 and New Mutants Annual Number 3. And the most important thing to know about Impossible Man stories is they're all functionally the same. Right. He's essentially the Marvel equivalent of Mr. Mixelplick. You know that. Miles. If you say it forwards, you're going to end up having to say it backwards, and that's even harder. Well, anyway, thankfully the Impossible Man doesn't work that way. You can say his name and he's fine. But yeah, he's a mischievous, all-powerful, shape-shifting alien who periodically comes to Earth to be annoying. And that's what happens here in the main story of Cable and X-Force Annual Number 1995. You'll note that Cable and X-Force are sharing an annual, which honestly makes a lot of sense. They share everything else. Bathtubs. Malays. Bathtubs full of malays. You. Yeah, I know. It's going to take a lot of soft scrub. Start to smell after a while. Anyway, in this issue, X-Force and Cable go to a tropical paradise island to have a vacation. The Impossible Man shows up and tries to convince Cable to let the Impossible Man's shitty 90s stereotypical slacker kids join the team. You know, you say Cable, but I am not entirely convinced that the character claiming to be Cable in this issue is actually Cable. You're not wrong, because even though this annual is written by Jeff Loeb, the same person who's been writing X-Force and a great deal of Cable, the characters personality-wise are very off-model, and none of them more than Cable. First of all, I do not buy him with shaggy hair and a backwards baseball cap. Well, that's not Jeff Loeb's fault, but, uh, fair. 
But yeah, he's acting much more like the main character of a comedy than he should. Cable can be in comedy. That's why he hangs out with Deadpool sometimes. It can work really well. But he's just goofy and he's in on the joke the whole time. And I don't think it works. Well, he can be in on the joke, but his his official comedic role is pretty much always the straight man. Depending, of course, on how you read his relationship with Deadpool. <laughs> Fair point. So that's that story, and like we said, there's not too much to say about it. It's not that it's not fun, it is kind of fun, it's just inessential. There's also a backup story where Domino fights some duplicates of herself and her fallen teammate Grizzly, who are sent after her by Arcade, who I guess has a similar relationship with her that Sabretooth did to Wolverine, trying to kill her every year. Never have a birthday on Earth-616. Yeah, basically don't don't do that, it's, it's a bad plan. So... Since there's not too much to say about this annual, we decided to throw in a one-shot that isn't strictly an X-book, although it does co-star the X-Men, and that is Spider-Man Team-Up number one, Double or Nothing. Now, this is relevant not only because it relates to the X-Men, but because it continues a theme that we saw in that Cable and X-Force annual, and in fact, the the 90s are absolutely chock-stuffed full of, and that's clone drama. That's right, because while we are an X-Men podcast, even being anywhere near the 1990s as a decade means that we can still smell the strange scent of Spider-Man's clone saga. All right, you want you want to you want to describe this one? I feel like you were you were there at least as a reader. I mean, not not like there there to talk to Peter Parker, but you know, broadly there. And I was definitely not. I myself was cloned by the Jackal, and that's what happened to Spider-Man. Way back in the 70s, in fact, there was a bad guy called the Jackal, he made a second Peter Parker, had the two of them fight, and ended up killing one of them. The surviving Spider-Man was pretty convinced he was the real one, because he was in love with Mary Jane Watson, the clone had never gotten a chance to meet Mary Jane Watson based on the timeline of when the Jackal had created the clone, so everything was great. Until the 90s. At which point we found that that dead clone, yeah, didn't die, had actually survived, started a life as Ben Riley, and was shortly thereafter revealed to have been the real Spider-Man. That's right, the Peter Parker we'd been following for 20 years of comics was actually the clone. I feel like he should just count as the real one at that point. See, that's my take as well, especially in light of the conversation we had about how valid or not artificial beings were when we were talking about that X-Baby storyline and the X-Men issues. Yeah, but also at that point, he'd been Peter Parker for longer than Peter Parker had. Well, nonetheless, one thing that any Peter Parker, clone or real, is good at is angst, and will therefore take any excuse to feel more of it. And that's where we find ourselves here as this issue takes place. Peter Parker, the one that was active during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, just found out that he was a clone, even though that'll later be retconned to not be the case, and is very angsty about it. And that leads us to this story, which is written by Mark Wade and Tom Payer, penciled by Ken Lashley, who we all remember from Excalibur, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Tom Smith, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Right on. I think we did this whole story as a cold open not too long ago, didn't we? Possibly. Honestly, they all kind of blur together in my head at this point. Fair enough, yeah. You've done, like, hundreds of them. Literally hundreds. Yeah, probably around 320 at this point. My god. Anyway, this issue opens up with Spider-Man swinging around Manhattan, feeling sardonically sorry for himself. And we see the start of a trend that's going to follow him through the 
this entire issue, which is reminders everywhere of the fact that he's a clone. He crosses Second Avenue. He sees his reflection in a fancy building's window. He does that all the time anyway. Like, that's part of his normal life. He does, however, take the opportunity to make a Tears of a Clone joke, which I appreciated. I know we cover X-Men and not Spider-Man, but it's genuinely a delight whenever Spider-Man shows up. He's just such a fun character. His dialogue and his internal monologue are delightful. He's profoundly hapless in ways that I appreciate. Exactly! And the cavalcade of clony indignities continues. At the Daily Bugle, the newspaper where Peter Parker works, the accountant requires Peter to show ID to prove he's really himself before he can get paid. He overhears somebody yelling at the copy machine, talking about how it just makes terrible copies all the time. He sees J. Jonah Jameson Jamesonly posing with a cardboard cutout of himself. You know, Peter, there's such a thing as reading too much into your situation. But that said, like, the plot really does go out of its way to just keep twisting that knife. Which is kind of how Spider-Man works. Again, he should really just be the hapless Spider-Man during this era. Right, he's like if Havoc was ever allowed to have fun. Oh, shit. Although I think, if if I recall correctly, Peter Parker did at some point actually get a doctorate. Uh, yes, in fact, I think maybe he has multiple doctorates at this point. I don't know. We're X-Men reviewers. Nobody in the Marvel Universe ever does a post-grad. True, true. They just keep getting doctorate after doctorate after doctorate. I assume that this has something to do with how, how fellowship funding works in the Marvel Universe, but I'm also really overthinking it. So let's go back to talking about Spider-Man and how his life is bad. It's true. His life is bad. Including even minor indignities. Like, Jay, you ever do that thing where you look at your reflection in a window, like maybe just to check your hair or see if you have something in your teeth, and then you realize that there's somebody on the other side of the window who's looking at you like you're nuts because you've been staring at them without realizing it? Yeah, and I live in New York, so like Spider-Man, the odds are very high that that'll turn out to be the window of the Hellfire Club. And in fact, it is. The Hellfire Club is just staring out at Spider-Man being like, what the hell? Not not the whole club, just Shinobi Shaw, who's, who's got some choice follow-up. Ah, the arachnid leaves. The way he was staring, I thought the brute might burst right in. Ah, <sighs> given the contemporary preponderance of gaudy dandies who leap, fly, and slither up walls, I suppose the least I should do is have the windows tinted. See, it's funny because he's a gaudy dandy. He totally is. But once again, this is like the second time in the last few episodes that we've had a Shinobi Shaw who's a genuinely enjoyable, straight-up villain. The thing is, Shinobi is a lot of fun when he's written well. When he's written badly, like, he's he's ridiculous and he's he's basically upstarts Shinobi. But when he's written well, he's 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 you know, kind of the, the horrible, horrible kid who took over the Hellfire Club, thinks he can do it better, has all of the pretense and none of the legitimacy, and plays it well. I mean, in a lot of ways, like, you know who he reminds me of? Who's that? Quentin Quire. God, you're totally right. He does. Yeah, like Quentin Quire as portrayed after he was truly, truly horrible. I feel like they've definitely hooked up at some point. Oh, God, yeah. And I think it was really bad, and each one very much blames the other for it not going well. Yeah, but specifically because they're that alike, because I feel like they're also both that degree of narcissistic. Agreed. They would have terrible sex, and they deserve it. 
So that kind of spun away. It did. So let's spin right back to another member of the Hellfire Club's newly revamped inner circle, that being Benedict Kine. Just like Shinobi is the black king of the Hellfire Club these days, Benedict is the white king, who we have seen a grand total of once in X-Men Volume 2 Annual, number three, the one where Shinobi tries to make Storm evil and sexy. As every villain at some point must. Exactly. I kind of love Benedict Kine in his second of, I think, a grand total of two appearances ever. I love his look. He's got a caterpillar mustache, little round glasses, a gray surfer haircut, and a brown business suit and overcoat. It's like he saw all of the possible aesthetics a person could have in the 90s and just tried to have them all. He is 100% a Kevin Klein character. Oh god, you're totally right. That actually makes the aesthetic kind of work. I didn't think of that until just now, but he absolutely is. He's specifically a Kevin Klein weird comedy character. Well, Kevin Dicked Klein, then, is worried because the Daily Bugle, you know, the aforementioned newspaper run by J. Jonah Jameson, has just published an expose on the Hellfire Club. And the Hellfire Club, especially the Inner Circle, really thrive on secrecy. So, the Daily Bugle is basically the New York Post, right? I don't really know much about New York, so I'll just take your word for it. There are two major non-New York Times news magazines. There's The Post and The Daily News. And as I recall, The Post is the conservative kind of terrible one. The Daily News is the somewhat more liberal one. The Bugle is The Post and the other publication that exists in in New York in the Marvel Universe, whose name I don't recall, and I feel really bad about it because Ben Yurick works there often, um, is, is The Daily News. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, then, uh, yeah, there you have it. Shinobi thinks that this expose is no threat. The Hellfire Club can just use their wealth and power to manipulate J. Jonah Jameson. Benedict's kind, though, is still concerned, and therefore it is time for the right of challenge. That's right, Skeksis, bring out the big black rock and the scimitars. I I don't know. I feel like Shinobi Shaw would definitely be into making it Skeksier. But on the other hand... He doesn't know what Skeks is. I'm really glad you jumped in, because I had no idea where I was going with that joke. See, this is why we're a team, Jay. This is this is why it's the and in Jay and Miles explaining the X-Men. So, so this is a challenge uh, for leadership of the Hellfire Club. And this, the, the life of J. Jonah Jameson is, is, is what's going to determine the winner. Each of the competitors, Shinobi Shaw on one hand, uh, Benedict Kine on the other... Is going to send out their their assassins, their weird little shadowy soldiers, who they have, who haven't been mentioned up to this point. They just happen to be around. And Kine's going to do his best to kill Jameson. Shaw's going to do his best to save him. And if, if Jameson lives, Shaw gets to stay in power. If he dies, Kine gets to take over the whole enchilada. And I love these soldiers. Like, Kine has his white knights, who are these two sort of beefcakey angel-looking dudes. Okay, what the hell is over their crotches? I cannot figure it out. I don't know if they're like metal loincloth things. They look like some kind of grating. It's really bizarre, yeah, because they're wearing these beautiful, pure white outfits, and then they just have these things over their junk. I don't know, they look almost like really terrible wallpaper that just got stuck on. Well, they, they look rigid is the thing. Like, they don't look like cloths, and they don't really look like normal shapes for loincloths to armor. Like, they look like these guys just cut out some shapes from, like, radiator grates and hung them over their dicks. 
angels are inscrutable whether they are flaming eyeballs surrounded by a plethora of wings or whether they're people in white outfits with radiator gratings over their crotches you know either way we can never fully understand their majesty shinobi's ebon knights are basically ninjas which is appropriate because shinobi throws by far and away the best shade in the issue kind in this shadowy world of cloak and dagger you are plaid pants and a tuba. Your comic stumbling will surely doom any luckless organization you take it upon yourself to lead. With that in mind, I decline to concede. That's like, that's a Hank McCoy level insult. Plaid pants and a tuba! It's great! Well, anyway, the White Knights and the Ebon Knights and Spider-Man all converge to kill slash protect slash whatever JJJ, as do the X-Men, because the X-Men were kind of nearby. They were in Manhattan. What were they up to, Jay? They were going to see what Beast insisted was the best theater out there, the best theatrical experience in Manhattan, um, which he later clarifies is, in fact, the worst longest-running Broadway show. Now, in in the actual world at this point, this would have been Cats. The Marvel Universe cleverly obscures that by naming it Dogs. Hey, didn't Bishop go see the actual Cats not too long ago? But regardless, yes, this is Dogs, and from what little we see of the play, it's kind of the same thing, but they're Dogs. Do, do you think there's like, more humping? I mean... Let's be real, in the theatrical version of Cats, there basically is already. Yeah, I guess so. It's, I, man, cat sex is really awful. There are barbed penises. Like, I feel like, I feel like dogs do generally just sort of more low-key social humping as just, like, a thing they do continually. And, and cats kind of save it for special occasions, like Tuesdays and bank holidays. Special terrible occasions. Right, Yes. Well, anyway, they don't get to see any humping, either terrible or wonderful, because suddenly there is a psychic signal and they are psychically led out into the street and over to the Daily Bugle, where they encounter the grand melee that is occurring. So, yeah, so this is the, the White Knights have shown up to attack J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, Spider-Man uses Byron as an insult, which I really appreciate. Oh, like Lord Byron. Yeah. The Ebon Knights are killed in battle, but Jean finds out they're not people, just robots, so just like in the Ninja Turtles cartoon, that means they're fair game for everybody to slaughter. But more importantly, they're duplicates of humans to be denigrated in front of Spider-Man. Yeah, as Peter hears that the Ebon Knights were just shoddy copies, he gets a little testy. Well, you're gonna help me round up Jameson? Or doesn't he pass your little humanity test? So the heroes, including a very surly Spider-Man, show up at the Hellfire Club, and I love that their strategy for rescuing Jameson from the evil angel weird crotch robot is to just toss him around like an unconscious hot potato as they fight the bad guys. Or, as Beast says, so that scholars can later date this comic by its contents... Like a human hacky sack. I should also point out that earlier Spider-Man compared um, the, the participants in general to pogs. Yeah. And Spider-Man, of course, uses his greatest strength in this battle, and that is 
banter with enemies and allies alike. He's got a few words for Scott. That's your strategy? Kick him around the room? You know, Psych, you're a lot more fun than people say. And Cyclops doesn't seem to know quite what to make of this as he half smiles at Spider-Man. Thanks, I think. Psylocke, on the other hand, is deeply unimpressed with the whole state of affairs. How pathetic. Clockwork thugs babbling chess talk. Old men kicked about like footballs. I'm almost glad Father never lived to see how his club had degenerated. Oh, come on, Betsy. This is, li- this is how the Hellfire Club has always been, and you know it. Yeah, yeah, stop being pretentious, Betsy. You, you know the drill. Like, we've read those issues about the history of the club. This is, this is it. This is just what it does. Spider-Man manages to take out Calvin Klein. I mean, Kevin Klein. I mean, Benedict Kine. Uh, during Kine's standoff with Shinobi. So there's a quick alliance. Everybody teams up against the White Knights. And I love the way they beat them. Because the White Knights keep teleporting all around. And Spider-Man realizes, oh, they're teleporting around in the exact positioning that a knight in a game of chess would. Like, the capital L shape. Which is so stupid and so on brand and so perfect. This is why we can't have nice things. I love this issue. Anyway, after the fight, we realize the X-Men were brought there by Tessa, Shinobi Shaw's assistant, formerly his dad Sebastian Shaw's assistant, and years later, we'll find out a plant in the Hellfire Club by Xavier, that's Sage, she's currently a living computer on Krakoa, she'll be a big deal in Extreme X-Men and Claremont's run years later. Anyway, she was basically sick of both Shinobi and Kind's bullshit, and just wanted, yeah, she just wanted to take all of them out. Unfortunately, this didn't quite work, but, yeah, close enough. The X-Men do convince Spider-Man to keep quiet about the Hellfire Club being led by mutants, because they figure, hey, if this gets out, mutants already have a pretty bad rap, this would make things even worse. Alright, you know, I always believed that whenever the truth comes out, everything's better off for it. But nowadays, nowadays my beliefs are starting to feel like ratty old hand-me-downs. And Archangel, grateful, says that Spider-Man is one of a kind. God damn it. So, yeah, it doesn't really tie too much into X-Men continuity. It's just a fun little Hellfire Club story, but I really enjoyed this one. Alright, I enjoyed this one too, but honestly, I have spent the last 20-odd minutes just waiting for us to get to X-Men Unlimited number 9. Because that's really what I'm here for. Alright, so this thing is just chock full of continuity, so... Previously on X-Men. You know what? We'll just cover it as it comes up. Yeah, yeah, there's so much and it's so random. Okay, so this is X-Men Unlimited number 9, titled Horse Latitudes. It's written by Larry Hama, penciled by Val Simekis, inked by Bob McCloud, colored by Tom Vincent, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I gotta say, so I talk about being into X-Men for the feelings and the, the soap opera, but I love it so much when superhero comics just really lean in and embrace genre goofiness. And there is nobody who does that like Larry Hama. It's so good, and it's so random, because this is just a nexus of obscure continuity. Like, it feels like Larry Hama put on a blindfold, reached into a continuity box, pulled out the first three things that his hands touched, looked at them delightedly, threw them into a jar, and shook that jar around while just going, ah! And then he opened it and somehow its contents were like a perfect and magical potion. Like this is this issue is so fun. There honestly, there aren't a lot of single issues. There aren't a lot of comics that I've just sheerly 
joyously enjoyed reading as much as I have this one. It is so unabashedly, unashamedly fun and silly, and yet goofy. Like, and it's pulling from stuff that's been in X-Men before, that's genre standard, that's, that's all over the map, and it does it so well. Again, not a lot of writers do this, period. But of those who do, very, very few can pull it off with the level of panache and sort of, I, I guess, consistency that, that Hama does. Yeah, I mean, if we could come out with like three times as many episodes, I would love to cover his Wolverine ongoing because it's so much fun. But honestly, just diving into random little Hama Wolverine stories like this one is not a bad way to do it. The art's pulling a lot of weight here, too, and we'll go into that more as we're talking about the issue. But Smekas and McLeod, in combination, are clearly having a blast with some of this stuff, understandably, once you find out what it is. And again, that sense of fun just carries through beautifully to the reader. So... Oh, also, in addition to everything else, it centers around one of my very favorite, almost always forgotten characters, that's Lee Forrester. Oh yeah, Lee Forrester, the captain of the good ship Arcadia, who has a habit of hooking up with X-Men characters and dealing with evil islands. Yeah, and she's great. She, along with Peter Corbeau, is, is one of the two most competent humans in the Marvel Universe. She's freaking awesome. And I don't know, maybe it's good that we only see her occasionally or else she would outstay her welcome, but honestly, I always want to see more Lee Forrester. There is one story she's in that I don't like, and only one, and it's sure as hell not this one. So, the Arcadia out at sea picks up a shipwrecked sailor, and they recognize him. This is Polo, and he used to be a sailor on the Arcadia, and his new ship, the Biloxi Bell, has been missing and believed lost for a month. Isn't he dead? I'm pretty sure that he was killed by Sanyaka in an issue of Cable before this happened. I mainly remember him from when he first showed up, when Cyclops joined the crew of the Arcadia, and Paolo tried to pull off Cyclops' glasses for no good reason, and then tried to punch Cyclops when Cyclops got mad. Yeah, yeah, um, he's he's an interesting dude. Right now, though, he's mostly a terrified dude. Not, not of exposure, which is what you would expect to be the main issue when you've been lost at sea for weeks, but of Bloodscream. Remember Bloodscream? I can never forget Bloodscream. He first showed up in Wolverine Volume 2, number 4. He's like a kind of medieval vampire guy. He, he eats souls. He can track people by the taste of their blood and hypnotize them. He's got great anglerfish teeth. Uh, but only when he goes into, like, super combat mode. He hangs out with a big, possibly giant from the Nine Realms guy named Roughhouse a lot of the time. Who himself definitely hangs out in bear bars. Uh, yes, he absolutely does. Bloodscream is great. He's almost entirely been a Wolverine villain, but hey, this is largely a Wolverine story, so here we are. Now, as we mentioned in the cold open, he believes that he can only be cured of his immortality and his vampirism by drinking the blood of an immortal. And he is convinced that Wolverine is an immortal, which, to be fair, kind of makes sense, because he's seen him in a lot of different time periods. He's wrong, but that's okay. He can also theoretically be killed by metal not forged by human beings. In theory, that means that he fears only the clan Yoshida honor sword, but you'd think Thor could then take him out pretty easily, being, you know, both immortal and having a hammer made of dwarf-forged Oru metal. Well, that's probably why Bloodscream never shows up in a Thor book, because he knows Thor would kill him. That's right. As you mentioned, he is mostly a Wolverine villain, and Wolverine is the guy whom Lee and the X-Men call in for this, because, yeah, Lee has the X-Men on speed dial, obviously. And Beast and Psylocke beat him there to see Wolverine approaching... But he's not alone. He is, in fact, pursued by predating the meme by a good several decades, 
30 to 50 feral hogs. Like, for real! There are 30 to 50 feral hogs chasing Wolverine, who apparently has run to Florida from New York. Yeah, and specifically, they're they're chasing him in reaction to his progressive feral state. Like, he he now just attracts feral hogs, I guess. That's, that's part of what he has going along with his own font. I wonder if that's in his list of powers on Marvel fandom. We should check after we record. I don't know, but I definitely actually yelled aloud when I got to that page, and it was not the only time I did that over the course of this issue. So going on... Lee lets them know fishing has been off lately. Ships have been venturing further and further out of their normal routes and further and further into the horse latitudes, the areas surrounding the Bermuda Triangle, and predictably those ships have been going missing. Now, no sooner do they establish this than they see a ghost ship in the fog because Bloodscream? Bloodscream is a fucking ghost pirate now. He decided being a vampire was passe. I know, he said. You know what I'm going to do? I am going to wreck ships and mind control all the missing sailors to be my ghost pirate crew on a fucking wrecked Spanish galleon. This is a man living his best on life. God, it totally is. Because, yeah, the last time we saw him, I checked, was actually in Wolverine's solo series, hanging out with the robots, Albert and LCD, to look for Wolverine to, you know, drink his immortal blood. And I guess at some point he was like, hey, you know what these robots made me think of? Being a fucking ghost pirate. This... Man, so he has a braided fuses into his hair, Blackbeard style. He is so excited to be here. What I really enjoy is that the comic specifically mentions that his pirate crew are just kidnapped normal sailors. But not only do they look a little zombified, they are wearing a bunch of old-timey pirate gear, and many of them have giant beards. So apparently he not only has decided to be a ghost pirate, but he has an amazing costume and set department. Well, the beards make sense, because a lot of them have basically been lost for a long time. The costumes, again, I, I sort of assume if you're running around pretending to be a ghost pirate, you take it all the way. Right? Bloodscream... Yeah, that's not that's not a job you half-ass. No, no, no. Bloodscream is not a man who takes any sort of half-measures. So anyway, at least part of this is an elaborate trap for Wolverine, um, whose blood, again, Bloodscream is convinced will make him immortal. Uh, and, and I don't even care. I don't even care what's going on. I love it so much. Uh, Psylocke jumps onto a shark and stabs it with both of her psychic knives at one point. And then the Arcadia gets towed away by a U-boat into the sky. Because sure, why not? Right, because the sea just sort of stops being the sea thanks to this big pink energy floomph, uh, and they're just sailing through through pink energy, through nothingness, to an island, and this is an island we have seen before. We're not the only ones. This is an island that a number of the X-Men have seen before, as has Lee Forrester, who shipwrecked here with Cyclops long, long, long ago. This is Octopusheim. This is a random island in the Bermuda Triangle covered in statues of elder gods that Magneto used for his base for a while, the X-Men used for their base for a while. It's not technically called Octopusheim, but, well, they never named it in the comics, so fuck it, it's Octopusheim. I would like to interrupt this discussion for a moment to interject that Larry Hama should be allowed to write Wolverine's dialogue in everything, always. To wit, the old knucklehead is up in the bow using the old sniffer. What we got ahead of us is plenty of nothing in spades. 
So what they've got, unfortunately, is an unholy alliance between Bloodstream and Belasco. Belasco is the deposed formal, former ruler of Limbo, uh, which is a hell-like dimension that Ileana Rasputin took over for a while. It's complicated. We covered it at exhaustive length when we talked about the Magic miniseries, and we will link to that in the cold open. What you need to know for now is that Belasco is a creepy bright red man. It's basically the devil, or a devil, because there are a whole bunch in the Marvel Universe. He's been kicked out of his home. He is apparently the the master of the cat people. Now, um, that just kind of gets dropped in the narration out of nowhere. I mean, in the Ilyana miniseries, Belasco does turn Shadow Cat into an actual cat person. So, I'm not saying this is without precedent. Maybe he just really loves the movie, The Cat People. Uh, maybe, yeah. Maybe he's sort of the master of that, like, you know, you might be, you, you or I might be the master of, of X-Men comics. Oh, okay. He's just uh, super into explaining the movie Cat People. He's got a podcast. Yeah. So he also has an Eldritch Glaive. Sure thing, bro. And again, he and Bloodscream are working together. But once the X-Men get to the island, it's pretty much Belasco's show, at least initially. He is able to take them out very easily. The X-Men are immediately, immediately taken out of action. Wolverine and Beast get thrown into magical cages. Psylocke gets gets encased in some kind of crystal. And then... And then... And then Larry Hama reaches into his magical bag of random continuity and pulls out... Well, maybe we should just let Beast explain. He's raising up the slab we saw at the bottom of the hole. That artifact is an exact facsimile of the cairn that is continually manifesting itself on the Xavier Institute grounds. The interdimensional gateway of the demon Nagari. Yup, yup, the random big rock in the X-Men's yard that summons demons. Here's another one. This is the one that originally showed up uh, right after, after, um... Thunderbird died, right? Uh, yeah, and Cyclops was so mad that he was blasting random crap, but unfortunately he blasted the thing where the demons come out. That issue, incidentally, was the first appearance of the angry Claremontian narrator. Sure was. So, the Nagari and Belasco actually do have a connection. The Nagari were created by the Elder Gods, Belasco works for the Elder Gods, so it's not entirely random, but none the fucking less. Now... Belasco's plan was to get Bloodscream to put together this this flotilla to invade the world of the Nagari and then cap and then then enslave all of them and turn them on the 616 and take over both universes. Bloodscream on the other hand thought that they were saving the world from an impending Nagari invasion because he's still pretty sentimental about the world. It's where he keeps his stuff. He misses his humanity obviously since he's been going after Wolverine's blood. Exactly. So, Belasco is manipulating Bloodscream. I'm sure this will go very well for Belasco. It does not. Of course Bloodscream turns on Belasco, because, man, he may not make an honest buck, but he's 100% American, and he don't work for no two-bit Nazi. Ooh, nice Rocketeer reference. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, the, best, it's the best face turn moment, and, and I, I love their whole fight, because the, here's the thing about Bloodscream— the shape of his mouth means that he always looks absolutely delighted regardless of his actual mood. He looks like he's just full of joy and teeth. 
Right, because, you know, when he's just sort of hanging out, he just looks like a very thin, very pale man. And then as he gets more and more blood screamy, his jaw just unhinges and distends, and he gets teeth that are like a foot long, and his tongue gets really long. It's great. I wish I could do that. Well, he's so happy. I feel like there might be some downsides. But yes, like you said, he's living his best life. And now, now he gets to not only redeem himself like he thought he was going to by saving the world from an invasion. He's still saving the world from an invasion, but he also gets to turn on his evil, traitorous demon boss and ally with the heroic X-Men. Aw, that's pretty cool of him. Yeah, he holds off Belasco for long enough for everyone else to escape. Oh, and uh, Lee takes care of the crystal that Psylocke is trapped in by just straight up shooting it with a gun because she's efficient like that. She is very efficient. Before that, she hidden some fish so that Bloodscream wouldn't find her. Yeah, she definitely did that. I love this issue. It's so fun. It's so silly. It's, it's very action-y. It feels like, honestly, it feels like what was good about the Silver Age with the more advanced sensibilities, experience, and voice of... of you know, modern comics. I feel like if we thought about this too much, we would find that it probably contradicts continuity a fair bit. But you know what? I don't give a shit. Yeah, I don't care. Any continuity that can't hold up to this isn't continuity that deserves to hold up. Actually, you know what it feels like? It feels like a Silver Age Fantastic Four story. It kind of does, yeah. And, and in a very, very good way, too. And I guess there are some continuity consequences, kind of. I mean, Octopusheim cracks in half during this ritual. I think it's fine the next time it shows up. I don't know, it's Octopusheim. It's weird. It's already reconfigured itself for this story anyway. Like, there are new hieroglyphics of Belasco enslaving early mutants. That's really never commented on. Whatever. It's fine. So, that really wraps things up. Uh, that That's pretty damn near a perfect issue. I completely uh, agree. I mean, it might not be everybody's cup of X-Men tea, but I feel like this issue was written specifically for the two of us. It's not only that. It really does an incredibly good job of being what it sets out to be. There's no pretense to it. There's no sort of sense that it was shooting for shooting in a different direction and landed here. Like, this, this issue flies like the truest arrow. 30 to 50 feral hogs, vampire ghost pirate, demon invasion, heroic turnaround. Tale as old as time. Absolutely. And you know what else is old as time? Confusion in general. And to that note, you've got questions. Aaron asks us via email. I was listening to episode 302, and after you brought up the idea of Nate Gray stabbing Holocaust with a mother box, that's a thing from DC, you don't need to worry too much about it. I got to thinking about how, in the original Kirby issues of The New Gods, the mother box was basically Orion's therapist. So in that spirit, which X character do you think would benefit the most from having a hyper-advanced AI therapist on their person whenever they do the superhero thing? Well, Aaron, I, I, I think you mentioned it yourself. Nate Gray! Nate Gray, who makes the most consistent, terrible decisions of possibly any character in the Marvel Universe. It's worth pointing out that Cable kind of does have that initially in the form of Professor. See, maybe that's why Nate Gray's judgment is so terrible, because he doesn't have Professor. That's what Cable would have done without Professor with him. Although, come to think of it, in the Ascani Sun miniseries, even with Professor, Cable makes some terrible decisions. But here's the thing with Nate Gray. He never listens to anyone who tries to give him good advice. So I feel like the therapist would just use the simplest, oldest trick in the book and just use literal reverse psychology, like, Nate... 
you should attack other heroes for no reason. And then Nate says, hey, screw you, AI therapist. I do what I want. I'll listen politely and cooperate with them. What do you think about that? So so my, my answer to this is much more pragmatically based. My answer is Madison Jeffries, because he's the one who'd most likely actually be, be able to make use of that. Oh, yeah, Madison from, from Alpha Flight. You're not wrong. Although I feel like it would definitely maybe fire him as a patient because he would try to take that relationship too far. I think another therapist who might fire their patient would be uh, if, if Havoc had one, because I think the therapist would just get so depressed themselves from, like, hearing about Havoc's, like, continual parade of terrible events. The thing is, though, I feel like therapy would actually help Havoc avoid that parade of terrible events, so it might work out. It might work out. At the very least, it could convince him to maybe think twice before trusting anything a redhead lady says. Well, or generally, just to go back to school. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know who I think legitimately could have benefited from a therapist, like an AI onboard therapist? This is, again, specifically an AI onboard therapist who's with them everywhere. That's the part that worries me a little bit, but... But no, seriously, Wolfsbane. I feel like Rain Sinclair could really have used a sympathetic, objective voice to, like, let her know that it was going to be okay, and she was a good person, and she didn't need to be ashamed all the time. Because the first time that I know of that she goes to therapy is in X-Factor number 87, where she talks to Doc Sampson, and she's already real messed up by that point, and not just because of the Genosian mutate bonding process. You know who I think absolutely should not have this? Who? Cypher. I feel like it would take about ten minutes for it to turn him into a supervillain. Oh, God. And hey, we already saw that in one universe, the uh, true Mm -hmm. friend, right? That is, to some extent, what I am basing that prediction on. Now, our next question isn't actually a question at all, but it is a clarification. Scott Honig wrote to connect some dots for us about the mysterious inkers from the pint-sized X-Babies one-shot that we covered in episode 323. As Scott wrote, I wanted to help you with some of the names of the inkers and colorists for the most recent X-Babies episode. In the pint size X-Babies one-shot, I know you know inkers Sean Parsons and Scott Koblish, but the rest are Rich Parada, Dexter Vines, Vince Russell, and most likely Scott Williams and Rodney Ramos. As for colorists, they are Jessica Ruffner, Matt Hicks, Greg Shegel, and yes, that's the writer of the X-Babies miniseries, Brian Smitty-Smith, and Paul Tutrone. Many of the people who worked on this book, including writer Ruben Diaz, were assistant editors at Marvel at the time. So this is clearly some kind of pet project. Fun side note... Artist Javon J.J. Kirby used to take Marvel interns out to lunch and talk shop. I know because I was one of those interns. Thank you so much, Scott. That is a great set of details to have, and we really appreciate it. I'm also really pleased that it turns out the colorist of one X-Baby's story ended up writing their own X-Baby's story. That's so cool. It's like watching X-Babies grow up. It is. Wait, how would that even work? Would they grow up into normal X-Men? Maybe they'd just get really huge. Giant babies. Giant, rampaging babies. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts, most of whom are not ghost pirates, but some of whom are. This one's not, though. This is the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you could hide in obscurity, Cam Marshall. That no one would ever dig through those dusty archives and find out what you'd been up to. But as Trace Carter has taught us all again, and again, and again, at shockingly regular intervals, nothing ever really stays buried. There's always someone willing to dredge up the old junk. 
And with that, the mic goes to Captain Bloodscream. God's teeth! Lean hard to starboard, me brainwashed, possibly zombified hardies! Tis the vessel of them scurvy brothers, Matt and Kurt Connor. Afore I snuffed out the candle of his life, that heathen shaman Dagoo didst curse their bones with the same red and endless life as mine. And yet, avast! Their crews have darkened the seven seas with more blood than old Bloodscream ever did in the name of Drake the Dragon and Good Queen Bess. Load the cannons, raise the yard arm, swab the poop deck, and fetch the plank. Yon captain's Connor's damned vampiric trail may bleed redder than blood screams, but those scalawags shall ne'er out-pirate one such as I. Yo-ho, me bravos. If yon demons don't fall afore our cutlasses, then let the heathen magics of this place send their wretched scow down neath the earth's very fundament. Haha, <laughs> poop deck. Poop deck. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded on a floating ghost ship somewhere in the Horse Latitudes and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com or within the Bermuda Triangle. New episodes come out of a big pink energy field surrounding Octopusheim most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out Explain the X-Men for visual companions to every episode and the occasional psychic battle. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, or in the air, in the aforementioned pink energy stuff, and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week is Hawk Talk, and then we are back to X-Factor. Whose lineup has somehow grown even more questionable. Also, I think the adversary is going to show up. Think they'll let him join the team? At this rate... Absolutely. Absolutely.